I want to ask you, before we look at this lesson, the objective in this lesson is to set up, essentially, the rest of uh, this book, The Christ of the Prophets. And so what this lesson is doing is it's looking at the biblical and theological, and I threw in as well, the historical setting of Israel's literary prophets. And so after we move past this chapter, what these lessons will begin to do is focus specifically on certain time periods, historical time periods in the life of Israel. And so what we're going to do in this lesson is provide the context uh, for the prophet's ministries, okay? And we're also going to interact with uh, higher criticism a little bit as well. Why are, why are we going to do that? Because O. Palmer Robertson does. And you have to understand that there is a, a theological liberal uh, backing or mindset that has uh, infiltrated into the church. This came to us in large part from the German higher critics, uh, the German theological schools, and it teaches that that the Bible is inspired in a way and not in a way, and that God's word isn't necessarily the final authority. Um, uh, they cut up the Bible into pieces, especially with the Pentateuch. They did large damage to the Pentateuch in their uh, documentary hypothesis that there are multiple contributors to the Pentateuch denying the authorship of Moses and that there were uh, a handful of sources that contributed to the writing of the Pentateuch. And so what you're left with is a canon within the canon. And who gets to decide what is original to the author and what was added later? Well, we don't know who gets to decide that. I suppose the, com the commentator gets to decide that. So let me ask you this. How, what does it mean to have a canon of Scripture inside the canon of Scripture. A canon within a canon. That's right. That's right. Some Scriptures are more inspired than others. Some are more accurate than others. Someone else? Josh? That's right. Yep. Anyone else? What's a canon within the canon? Yeah, that, that is one of the, the very sad outcomes of this viewpoint, is that how do you know what's truth? And usually it does become a slippery slope where those who hold to a canon within the canon begin to slide down the pathway that there is no canon. And therefore, there is no objective truth. Yeah. How does a person get a canon within the canon? How does that happen? Josh? Josh? 
Oftentimes it is the commentator. Yeah, yeah. Jeff, did you have a comment? Yeah. But I wonder if you said that the outcome is that there is no ultimate truth, but I wonder if the origin of the belief is that there is no ultimate truth, and then, then they reach for objective evidence to support what you really are. Hard to know the starting point with some of them, isn't it? Yeah. Josh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, you know, some questions about uh, Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. Some scholars call it second Isaiah. Um, And so, you know, hey, look, just rip out Isaiah 40 through 66 as being divinely inspired and authoritative. You don't have to concern yourself with it. Uh, Documentary hypothesis about the uh, writing of the Pentateuch. Uh, especially the Synoptic Gospels, uh, you'll often hear scholars talk about a Q document, and so they'll just get to decide, oh, well, uh, the Q document is being used here and referenced by, the, by the, the authors, and so we don't have to give that statement right there divine authority. Let me ask you this. What's the result? I think we already talked about that, it, and it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. So let's look at this. First and foremost, when we think about the prophets, there is the tradition of multiple editors. And Robertson says that the assumption is that the books of prophecy as they currently appear reach their present condition through the work of a multiple of editors across several generations. Or you might say uh, collectors, right? That the writings of the prophets came about... uh, uh, through the collect the through the work of collectors and editors, and so they took these documents and they collected them, they edited them, and they pieced them together, and that's what produced the book of Jeremiah, or that's what produced the book of Daniel. And oftentimes, pretty much all the time, all that I've seen or read, they always give a much later date of authorship. Now, why would they do that? Yeah, yeah. So, prophecy doesn't make any sense. So, they deny the supernatural. And so, how could the prophet Daniel foretell the rise and fall of these kingdoms, of the Greeks and the Romans and the Ptolemies and the Seleucids? It doesn't make any sense that Daniel would be able to foretell that. So, the the dating of what we know of Daniel must be much later on rather than early on because it's not possible for a prophet to foretell the future because they deny the supernatural. And so the tradition of multiple editors is the belief that the writings of the prophets were collected. And there's a couple of options here. Some scholars place a primary value on the, what they would say is the very words of the prophet himself. 
All right, so the, they will isolate and say, oh, well, these words right here, they were from the author. Okay, well, what about the other words? Oh, well, those came from a different source. Well, who died and made you the king to decide what is primary and what's not? Option number two, some scholars give up recovering the original unauthentic words of the prophets altogether. And so they'll say, well, look, we don't really know what was original to those authors. We don't really know what was original to the prophet. And so, therefore, we don't take into consideration that this would be divinely inspired. And the third option would be that the content of the prophets is a reliable record of the ideas of the prophets, but not always a record of the actual words of the prophets. So you get the difference here, right? You, you see the distinction that some of these scholars are making, that it's a reliable record of the ideas of the prophets, passed down through different documents and sources and oral traditions. Uh, we know that there was a person, Jeremiah, uh, and so uh, they, you know, the view is that what is created for the book of Jeremiah is consistent with the personality and the person of Jeremiah uh, through oral history and some other documents that have been collected over time. However, it is not safe to be an actual record of his words. And why do they say that? Because the collectors of the various utterances of the prophets wrote to preserve the divine words for posterity and to adapt them to a practical use. And so one of the criticisms for the book of Daniel that they argue for a much later uh, it's called the Maccabean theory of the authorship of Daniel, is they'll say, well, listen, the book of Daniel didn't come about during the time that Daniel was with the exiles in Babylon. The book of Daniel came about during the time of the Maccabeans, much, much later. And so they picked up the story of Daniel, repackaged it, and re redacted it, and changed it, and updated it, so that those living through the Maccabean period and the persecution that was faced would have a, a, a prophetic book to inspire them to remain faithful in their service and worship of God. That's the Maccabean theory about the authorship of Daniel. Let's consider this question here. Did the Spirit inspire the ideas of authors or inspire the words as authored? So what is divinely inspired, the ideas or the words? Got to be the words, Jeff says. Mm -hmm. Thus saith the Lord, which would be an indication of what? The actual words, okay? right the words convey the truth we we begin with the words and then from there we move to the ideas that's right yeah uh-huh that's right yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Verbal plenary inspiration is what our doctrine of Scripture is, right? That it is the words themselves are inspired. The words themselves are the actual words of God. As the Holy Spirit moved upon and carried along the authors of Scripture. And so whether the author is the writer himself, or in the case of some of Paul's epistles, he's utilizing the amanuensis, uh, who is writing while the the author is dictating the words. Um, We know that Jeremiah, uh, that Baruch, assisted Jeremiah in the writing of many of his prophecies. And so uh, either way, the author himself is being inspired by the Holy Spirit that the words on the page are inspired by God. Yes, sir. I don't know. I'd have to think about that. The, 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 you're talking about the sexual ethics where he says... Uh, I say this, yeah, what is it, 1 Corinthians 7? Yeah, yeah, I'd have to think about that. Let's look at this. Uh, Problems with the view of the tradition of multiple editors. Robertson says, if the prophetic words were God's very words, then they must be preserved exactly as they were received. If they're the very words of God, they have to be preserved as they were received. Number two, it's one thing for followers of prophets to apply a prophetic message. So it's one thing for the, for the Maccabeans to read the book of Daniel and find inspiration to remain faithful in their service and devotion to God. That's a good thing. We want to be able to read the scripture and be inspired unto obedience. It's another to adapt them from the origi- their original form and content and purport to preserve them in the modified form. So it's one thing to say, for the Maccabeans to say, we have been inspired to serve the Lord because of the story of Daniel. It's another thing to say that editors took the oral tradition of Daniel and adapted it for the Maccabean p- people. That makes sense? There's a huge difference between the two. Brueggemann, and this quote is so ironic because he is one of the higher critics, in much scientific study of the Old Testament, it is generally assumed that skepticism is much more intellectually respectable than is fideism or faith. What passes for uncommitted objectivity in the Old Testament study, moreover, is often a thinly veiled personal hostility to religious authority. Boy, he hits the nail on the head there, doesn't he, right? So the idea that you and I would accept by faith that the Bible that we have, of course with evidence, but that the Bible that we have and the writings of the prophets that we have are trustworthy and reliable divinely inspired messages from God, the fact that we would believe that and accept that by faith, the intellectual community finds absolutely absurd. One of my professors at Gordon-Conwell was telling me, uh, he's, a, he's an Old Testament scholar, 
and uh, and is you know they're part of these uh, theological consortiums, and they write uh, academic journals together and commentaries. And I remember him telling our class, he said, he says, I'm a weirdo. I believe that Moses authored the Pentateuch, and my colleagues laugh at me. They think I'm I'm ridiculous, is what he said, right? Why? Because he accepts it by faith. And the argument should be that the intellect should hold out over faith. We don't have to separate the two. Tim Keller question, which is so uh, probing. Heard Tim Keller say one time, when your college student comes home and says they deny the authority and the inspiration of God's word, you need to ask them who they're having sex with. Now, why would he say that? Ben? That's right. That's right. It's all up to you, right? You get to, you get to create your own standard of truth. You might look to the Bible for inspiration and for some good morals and ethics, but you get to pick and choose in accordance with your own morality. And so someone who has grown up under the authority and the preaching and the teaching of God's word, when they depart from that, something must change in order for them to be consistent because their consciences are seared. And so what they'll often begin to do in order to justify their own sinful choices and behavior is deny the authority of God's word. And there are skeptical, skeptical professors uh, who ridicule the faith and ridicule the church and ridicule the Bible, and they just push them over the cliff, don't they? Oh, they're all over. Um, generally, a school begins, to, begins uh, to be known by a certain product. Okay, so like, for example, and I'm not trying to be mean or cruel, but um, like Union Theological Seminary, which was at one time a, a prominent Presbyterian seminary, um, uh, uh, has s- slipped beyond the ridge into denying the authority of God's word. Uh, they had a chapel service a couple of years ago where they uh, worshipped plants and knelt down to plants and were crying about uh, the damage that we have done in polluting the earth. And so they had a whole chapel service like that. James Cone uh, taught at Union Theological Seminary, and, and Dr. Cone uh, in many ways denied the inspiration and the authority of God's word. Uh, some of them are still able to produce remarkable scholarship. Uh, someone like Bart Ehrman, who teaches in North Carolina, might be able to produce some good scholarship, uh, but he has an agenda, and that agenda is to deny the authority and the inspiration of God's word. And so uh, institutions become known for this. All right. Yeah, good question. There's been a search for an alternative. Um, I'm not going to spend really any time on this because it's just rehashing what we've already talked about. Um, But Brueggemann and Childs have tried to come up with some alternatives and have failed. They have failed in attempting to do so. God's word testifies in itself that it is the very word of God. Time and time again, scripture validates its own 
authority. So let's move on from there and focus in the remaining amount of time on the uh, really the historical and theological setting for the prophets. I want to give you a historical overview. This is on page three. Once you see this historical overview, a timeline uh, beginning with the United Kingdom monarchy, 1050 to 933 BC. This is the time of King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. King Solomon died, and his son uh, Rehoboam came to the throne, and uh, he, what did he say? My father disciplined you with, uh, what is it, uh, whips or something like that, but I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. Right, so he's, what he was saying is, I'm going to be much harder on you than my father. And so Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, led a revolt, a revolt, and in 933 the kingdom was split. Israel was split. Essentially ten tribes in the north in Israel and two tribes to the south, Judah. The northern kingdom fell in 722 B.C. to the Assyrians. And those tribes were dispersed and they're lost. The southern kingdom began to come under the heavy hand of the Babylonians. And the first deportation of exiles to Babylon, we date uh, around 605, 605 B.C. The exile began, we often give it the date of 587 or 586 to 536. And what happened in 587 or 536, give or take a little, you know, months, is that Nebuchadnezzar, his army came in and just razed the city of Jerusalem. The walls were broken. The temple was destroyed. People were killed. Uh, it's horrific. If you read the end of the book of Jeremiah, it talks about this. The end of Second Chronicles talks about this, or Second Kings does. Um, the book of Lamentations is a lament about the destruction of Jerusalem, and it's disturbing. It is really disturbing. They essentially cut off the city's water supply, and they just waited for people to starve to death, is what they did. Babylon was conquered, and uh, the, the exiles, a group of exiles, were sent home in five, uh, 536, and uh, the temple was rebuilt. We read about in the book of Nehemiah where the walls were rebuilt. In the book of Ezra, the temple was rebuilt. And the date we give the finishing of the temple is 515. And it did not reach to the grandeur and splendor of the previous temple, no less. There you'll see a summary of the prophets in their historical context. So I think it's just helpful to think about that, you know, when you're reading Daniel and Ezekiel, you know that this is during the Babylonian exile. It's helpful to know that. When you're reading the book of Jeremiah, you know that you are dealing with 7th century and Jerusalem is about to be conquered. Two prophets we're a little uncertain about, and that's Obadiah and Joel. Uh, we have a difficult time placing uh, the, their ministry and when their ministry occurred. Um, we receive it no less as scripture though and scholars have their opinions about when they served and, and how we should date those books I'm not going to get into those arguments I'm not well versed in all those it would take me some more time to study it but 
it's still in our canon. We consider it inspired. We just have difficulty of knowing when their ministries occurred. So let's map out, let's look at some maps here and see uh, some ge geography here of what's happening. So if you look at this map and you can see the journey of Father Abraham, Abraham was called, where, did, where was Abraham when God called him? Ur. Where was Ur of the Chaldees? Well, it was far east on the other side of the desert. Far, far east. And so God calls him, and Abraham travels up around the desert, past Nineveh, past Haran, past Aleppo, and down toward, he eventually makes his way to Egypt, doesn't he? And then he comes back into the land of Canaan. The Assyrians, their kingdom, their headquarters was located around Nineveh near Nineveh. And so when the Assyrians come, 722 B.C., and, de and destroy the northern kingdom, they come across the top of the desert, down through the mountains, and conquer the northern kingdom. The Babylonians are from the area and the region that who was from? Abraham. Abraham was from the area where the Babylonians had their kingdom. And so the, ba the Babylonians in multiple conquests uh, either come through part of the desert or go north around the desert uh, near the Great Sea and come down into Jerusalem that way. As well as Egypt, by the way. And so you can see that the land of Canaan is this uh, it's in, geographically, it's in a prominent location because if you're going to travel on foot and by land and you need to go north or south or you need to go east, more than likely you're going to travel through the land of Canaan and eventually through the land of Israel. To go from Egypt, you could either sail on the Red Sea, but if you don't have money to charter a ship, you're going to go on foot, but you don't want to cross the desert on foot. And so, strategically, Israel, or the land of Canaan, is right in this highway where all roads, it's kind of like I-95, right? Like, all roads north and south pass through I-95, right? And so, this is the I-95 of the ancient Near Eastern world. People are traveling right through there. When you understand the exile, you understand, look at Joshua 24, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Tira, and the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. So what the Lord is saying is I called Abraham from a pagan nation. I called Abraham away from Ur of the Chaldees. I separated Abraham to myself. The exile is a return to the land of Abraham, though. It's sending them back to their place of origin so that the land might enjoy its full Sabbath rests. You can read that in 2 Kings. This is uh, the period 70 years is so that the land can enjoy its Sabbath rests. So the question that the prophets deal with is, is this God unadopting Israel, unadopting them, or is it 
punishment. You have to wrestle with that when you read the prophets. In Exodus 4, Israel is called by God his firstborn son. Exile appears as a rejection of this sonship, though. Hosea 1, 8 through 9, prophet Hosea had a child. When she weaned the child named No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. So is God unadopting his son? Exile was foretold in the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28. Look there on page 5. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. So this is part of the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28. If you violate the covenant, if you break God's law, God will discipline you by the hand of foreign nations. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you in all your towns through all your land which the Lord your God has given you. The Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. This is all foretold in Deuteronomy 28. The exile would happen. Robertson says, God's purposes of redemption originally focused on a single individual, Abraham. But in exile and restoration, an entire nation was involved. A nation in which various members of its constituency responded to the challenges of these moments in widely differing ways. Isn't that interesting, right? Some people during the exile were repentant. Some people during the exile were not repentant. Some were and some were not. So was this unadoption or was this disobedience? What was that, what was that Mike? Yes. Isn't it important theologically when we consider that what Christ does, and I talked about this in the preaching through the Gospel of John, what Christ does is he comes and forms true Israel, a true spiritual Israel, doesn't he? He calls those, you remember, I'm the, she- I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep. What he does is he calls a group of people from the flock of Israel, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, And then he calls a group from another flock that they don't know, and he combines and makes them one flock with one shepherd. So Jesus creates a true spiritual Israel. And Paul picks up on this theology in the book of Romans, and he will say that not all who are of Israel are of Israel. Which one is it? Yeah, which one is it? Yeah, that's how I would explain it. Yeah, absolutely. So what would the restoration look like? And these are some questions to consider as you're reading the prophets. What would happen to the remnant? Ezekiel talks about this. God, are you going to destroy the remnant? Are you going to destroy them completely? Would Jerusalem be restored back to its former glory? 
Would the temple be rebuilt and would the glory of God return to it? Robertson says, in the prophetic vision, this restoration would expand so that it became universal in nature, embracing all the nations of humanity. And what we ought to understand about that is that this was the purpose of the covenants to begin with. When you go back to the covenants, God was in a covenant with Israel so that he might make them a shining city on a hill. God was in covenant uh, with Abraham so that all the nations through Abraham would be what? Blessed. Right? And so this is in the sovereignty of God and the mysterious counsel of God's wisdom and his own understanding is that all of this is working to accomplish, working and leading up to the new covenant in which all the nations, all the peoples would be grafted into covenant with God. It's described as a new exodus, Isaiah 43, 16 and 19. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea and path in the mighty waters. What's that a reference to? The exodus, right? The Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. So just as God led his people through the Red Sea and provided for them in the wilderness during their wanderings, the exiles will come back and there'll be a new exodus. Isaiah 48, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it and send it out to the end of the earth. It makes you think about, right, all the celebration. It makes me think about the Ten Commandments. When the movie, The Ten Commandments, when they leave Egypt and they're party, they're having a party, right? They're rejoicing. The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. So what the prophets are saying is the exiles will come back. A group of exiles will come back. A remnant will come back and God will preserve them. Additionally, there'll be a new King David, Ezekiel 34, and I will set over them one shepherd. Sounds like the Gospel of John, doesn't it? One shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And so when Jesus comes, he's called what? The son of who? He's called the son of David. Hosea 3, verse 5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God. Well, wait a minute, Hosea. I thought that these were being unadopted. No, he makes not my people my people again. And he makes not my son my son again, is what he does. David, their king, they'll seek the Lord their God. And David, their king, and they shall come and fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So important to understand that these are the themes that communicate and relate to the exiles returning back to the land of Canaan. Totally out of time. I went two minutes over and I get mad at the other teachers when they do this. Here I am breaking my own rules. Let's pray.